Well, good morning, everybody. And uh, I'm going to read all of John 18, so buckle up. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back to, and came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl asked asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied, I always taught in the synagogue or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then came back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did... Others talk to you about me. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from, but is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be worshiping together this morning. Hey, this is like the Where's Waldo. Let's find out where John is this week. Uh, This background is Megan's folks' house. We are up here. Um, I'm recording this up here. Uh, just when we're celebrating spring break. Uh, But it's so good to be with you. Let's bow our heads with prayer this morning. God, um, wherever we're at, however we're connecting, um, we so desire to not just be with each other, but be with you this morning. God, the great balm of quarantine, has been that regardless of how far we are from each other, we are no farther away from you every moment of our lives. God, bless this time. God, I pray that you would bless the words that I have to share, that they would be your words, that that these would be inspired from your text, God, and that they would be pure. God, that is my intention. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Well, this morning we're sort of culminating um, the, much of this upper room passage in John. 
Uh, we've gone through uh, chapter 12 with the triumphal entry. We've gotten Jesus and the disciples have gone up to this upper room. They've had this focused time of discourse. And as Michael Miller preached last week, the final high priestly prayer, Jesus is praying over his disciples before he embarks with them on the heart-wrenching, dramatic, tragic story of his death on the cross. And so today, join me in John chapter 18 as we follow Jesus into the valley of the shadow of death. Now, as we've walked through this series, we've talked particularly for our community in this Lent season about how we could focus on Jesus and how that focus would build up a process of habits, a way of abiding in relationship with Jesus for the long haul. We've called these spiritual disciplines, holy habits. Some people call them habits of grace. The whole principle here is that we are removing things from our lives and beginning to add and articulate habits and live them out as a process, not of achievement, but of relationship. Not as checking a box, but as creating space for conversation. And we've talked about how that will need us to have integrated bodies that our, that our hearts and minds, that our spirits and our flesh become integrated so that we can slay both the sins of the flesh and also the sins of the misguided spirit together by listening to feelings and preaching to feelings. And then last week, Michael talked about unity. And gosh, I was just so struck about how much our culture has unity against things instead of for things. But Jesus is one who instructs us to have unity for him. And so today I want to springboard off of this unity conversation. John writes this intentionally. He positions this unity prayer right before Jesus is going to leave the upper room and head into the Garden of Gethsemane. And as Jesus is crossing down into this garden, we see in the story that he is embarking on a journey in unity with the Father through great pain and suffering. Today, we're going to really consider the Christian life and the meaning and the purpose and the dependability of pain and suffering in our life. The early church was awash in pain and suffering. I looked up at like seven of the 13 apostles or the 12 apostles. Sorry, if you add, no, 13, 13, because they added one. And then you had Saul, Paul. 13 of those were martyred in some way, according to tradition, for their beliefs and their works in the early church. Persecution of the church was rampant. When John in 90 AD is writing the story in his old age, he is reflecting back and he is writing to an audience that is very familiar with pain and suffering. But conversely, this community so well-versed in the endurance of pain is also the place of solace for those 
that are living in a culture that have endured pain and suffering as a matter of their identity. The church was the first place of true solace, a countercultural heaven on earth for women and slaves. A place where they flocked to, where they were treated with equality. The church provided historically unprecedented comfort, even as it endured its own cross. How did this church do this? How was this marriage of pain and suffering and peace and hope so palpable, so real? And how can we achieve that? I was struck as I was looking in this passage how much this fits, this sort of, that one of my daily rituals do most days is just to go over Psalm 23 in my head by memory. And I thought of this text and I said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. And I'm envisioning Jesus as he is embarking on this story, just through the valley of the shadow because he is, why? On the righteous path that on the righteous path is what takes him through the valley of the shadow of death. And so I wanted to distill down three things I found from this text and spend quite a while here just jumping through and learning how these relate to each other. And the first is that the basis of Jesus's suffering is confidence. That the basis in which he suffers is a deep confidence. The second is that the attitude in all of his suffering is hopeful. Jesus is not hopeless in his suffering. He is hopeful despite his pain. And third, that the goal of all suffering, the goal of all suffering, citizens, church, all is redemption and restoration. Remember, the point of the cross is resurrection through the forgiveness of sins. So let's, let's start looking at this basis in all suffering as being confidence in God. All right, so in, the, in this beginning action sequence, there's sort of three phases to this story. But in this first sequence, we have this incredible storytelling by John. Where Jesus, as we know and has been foreshadowed, is going to be betrayed. And here he walks right into the trap willingly. There's a sense of mystery. Why would Jesus go right to where he's been baited? It says that Jesus went to a place that was known by the one who would betray him. And here we see one of what appears to be the worst strategies, one of of the most sideways experiences in this story. Now, Jesus has had a lot of confrontation and a lot of turmoil, but here it's like the wheels fall off. At the beginning of this story is like everything the disciples had been hoping for seems to just fall on its face. We see a dramatic manhunt in the opening of this story, a surprising revelation and an act of violent resistance. But how is any of this even possible? It's possible because Jesus 
is disciplined. Jesus sets the stage as somebody who is so disciplined with his body and with his spirit. It says, when Jesus had spoken his words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus is disciplined in knowing what is before him and yet heading into it. He is willing to seek a resurrection life by walking not around pain and suffering, but through it with confidence. Why? Because he has practiced these disciplines. All throughout the story of Jesus in all four gospels, we see Jesus practicing all of these different disciplines. Disciplines of abstinence and removal. Jesus practices silence and solitude. Jesus practices prayer when he could be out healing droves of people. He instead relies and asks for relationship through prayer. Jesus practices fasting. Jesus practices denial of temptations. Jesus practices all of these kinds of practices of abstinence. And then he also practices disciplines of engagement. Jesus celebrates, Jesus eats, but Jesus doesn't do any of those things for himself. He always does it to build relationship and bring glory to the Father for the other. What if our practices, both of removal and engagement, were all done to bring glory to the Father? That our practices of eating were not about gluttony, but were about hospitality, I could keep going, but just think about all these ways. What we see is that Jesus is a disciplined person and that he acts every way in glory to the Father. And here, it's like it hits a new level. Here, we're at the fever pitch. And Jesus' attitude of confidence is not simply from within. See, you can do disciplines. You can do weight training. You can do all of these things to build a confidence that says, I can do it, mind over matter. I've got this. But Jesus' confidence doesn't even, even though he's God, it doesn't come from within. It comes from without. It comes from above. Now, the reality is we actually all know that it's easier when push comes to shove to do things on the assurance of others than on the assurance of ourselves. Just take being alone in a trying situation. You will start to fall apart. You will start to feel self-pity. You will start to feel like you just wish you had a companion. But now take a situation, and by the way, every leader finds themselves in that place. Every parent has found themselves in that place. Every single person leading their life has found themselves in that place. But now take yourself and build your confidence in the assurance of others. What about in the workplace when a boss tells you to get a job done? You hardly question the job. Oftentimes you will just jump in and do it because you know you have the assurance of somebody above you 
that they are both going to take the fall for it and that they're going to blaze the trail for it, that they are making the path for it. Jesus's confidence is built on the best storyteller who he knows is going to tell the best yarn with this story. But more than that, it's built on the best creator, the one who has made the most beauty. It's built on the perfect designer, the one who has the best philosophy. It's built on the ultimate provider, a father who desires you to live the most purposeful and meaningful and God-glorifying life. And he knows that that person will not fail him. So the most important thing to take away at the beginning, that when we build our confidence on pain and suffering, what we have to first admit and commit to is that God is the one who has authority over this world. Not us, not others. Because in this story, we will see that there are many warring authorities. God makes great pain, or John makes great pains as he tells this gospel to us. That Jesus is aware of God's authority. Look at verse four. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forth and said to them, whom do you seek? William Barclay writes that here we see Jesus's courage, his authority and his reliance on authority, that he makes a choice to die. Jesus makes a choice to die that is motivated, we will find, by protective love and utter obedience. So it's compelling here for all of us that can fancy ourselves capable in so many different ways, who have worked so hard to be at the top of our game in so many different places, that no matter how much power we hold, the Christian life is one where we admit, we give up, and we obey the purpose of God, even in the wielding of our power, which in some cases may mean giving it away. Christians do wild things. And I have seen this, you guys, so much. Just this week, I was just overwhelmed by the fact that Christians do crazy things for God. Christians quit their jobs for God. Christians move to other cities for God. Christians move to other countries for God. Christians change careers. Christians change schools. Christ followers build relationships that don't advance their life. They give money to things that don't advance their life. And they look crazy. They look bonkers. And you will only do this if you practice a confident trust in God's authority. Even if it means periods, perhaps long periods, of suffering in your life. But Jesus does this, and John underscores this authority throughout by, with multiple occurrences, stating in the story that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy over his life. What is that another way of saying? Jesus is fulfilling and being obedient to God's story by fulfilling the prophecy. Jesus would not make God a liar when the story of his life is told. Jesus 
will not make God a liar. In fact, when Peter makes it possible for Jesus to change courses and change plans and, and, and maybe superpower and level up all of his disciples so that they can just ravage like Gideon's army, these forces that confront him, what does he do? He tells Peter, don't cut this ear off. Shall I not drink the cup? Jesus chooses, even when other people would make it easy for him to live out for his own advantage, he chooses as a, sometimes a path that looks like a masochistic path of pain and suffering to fulfill God's vision for his life. Now, we, then as we continue to look at this, we can see that Jesus' confidence allows him to exercise God's authority through him. Jesus is God, but he also is part of the Trinitarian connected chain linked God. And his confidence comes from the father, even though he is of and in the father. And so Jesus, both speaking out of the father's confidence and his own deity, those two things are inseparable here. We find that in this story, there's a confrontation. Now, I got a little bit of my head of myself. What is happening here? A band, it says, of soldiers, a detachment, we could call it, approach Jesus with Judas. And that Judas basically says, this is the guy. But what this doesn't articulate well is I've always thought in my mind, maybe because painting showed this way, that there's like eight or ten soldiers maybe less, just like a little group that comes out with Judas and maybe one of the priestly authorities. So the priests had like their own police. And so in this detachment, if you look at the history of this, commentators have looked at, at how this word spira, which is the word for detachment, what it means, the smallest, the minimum possible that it articulates in any other usage of this Greek word is 200 soldiers minimum. 200 soldiers. The priestly authorities are so petrified. Judas, even as the one who has portrayed him, is so freaked out about what might happen that they bring 200 soldiers to confront Jesus. Now, read this in light of that. When they come up to him, Jesus says, whom do you seek? In verse five, they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. The Greek for that is ego emi. Ego emi. Now there's a long history with this word. When Jesus says, I am he, he is harking back multiple stages. John is writing this, remember, as the symphonic magnum opus, this capstone of biblical theology. And he is saying, and he is referencing here, multiple times in John where Jesus has also said, I am he. Maybe not translated in those exact words, but the same Greek is happening there. Earlier in John 8, Jesus is talking and he says, before Abraham was, I am. Same words as I am he. Before Abraham was, I am. What if Jesus said that to you when you were confronting him, betraying him with your troop of 200 soldiers? 
Or when Jesus, ironically and interesting, paradoxically, when Jesus comes into the storm and finds himself on the boat to comfort the disciples and they say, who are you? And he says, it is I, do not be afraid. The same words he's using. And this harks back to Exodus 3, 14, where God said unto Moses, same words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I am that I am. Are you Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus says, ego, emi, I am that I am. And they fall backwards. 200 soldiers fall backward under the authority of Jesus in the confidence of the father before Abraham was. I am. Now remember that even Judas, who has the devil who has entered his body at this point, a demon-possessed man. Even the devil in Judas falls backward. The flesh cannot sustain the power of a holy God. Jesus has that kind of power. And John makes it very clear so that when Peter comes and chops an ear off and Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? Jesus is choosing his death. Jesus is choosing to lay down his life for others. His authority is going to be used how? To free the disciples. He says, whom do you seek? He says, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus is even before the cross, a substitutionary sacrifice for those that would follow him. But isn't it wild that Jesus's confidence from Peter's perspective and this is where our confidence can go awry. Leads to, G, to Peter growing rightly in his confidence. I'm standing next to the creator God. Take this. And out of that righteous, good confidence, Peter does not follow the Yahweh way. Out of that righteous and good confidence, it leads Peter to a disobedience, drunk with the power of God. And he cuts off an ear. Because Peter is not drinking up the power so that he can endure the suffering to carry the cross. But Peter, instead of being willing to die with his confidence, is wanting to kill with his confidence. Doesn't this remind us of Michael Miller's sermon? What are we at unity for or against? So much of our unity against is getting drunk on the power that God has ordained with the church and using it in our desire to want to kill others because of the evil that we see in them. And Jesus said, I didn't kill the evil that I saw in them. I died to restore them out of that evil. It's a profound message of nonviolence. I'm just gonna underscore that. Let that sit with you. This is a profound message of nonviolence in Jesus' kingdom vision for our life. Chew on that. Where is the right place for violence in light of this text as a Christian? Shall I not drink this cup, what? That the Father has given me. Jesus has been given suffering from God Almighty for the goodness and redemption of all things. Richard D. Phillips contrasts two gardens in the story. 
He says, here we enter a garden. And John means for this in his theological sense. When I mean theology, I mean reading the whole Bible as one story. He writes this, he says, Adam and Eve by their sin plunged the race into misery in one garden. They fell and carried their progeny over the cliff of sin into destruction. Christ, on the other hand, stood firm. He did not sin, nor did he shirk from his work. As a result, he saved all whom the Father had given him. In Adam, all were lost. Christ could say, those you gave me I have kept. None of them is lost. So Jesus, in his pain, is able, because of his confidence, to get out of himself. Oh, what a difference trust in God makes for our life. What freedom from our self-pitying pain it is to share his confidence. But before we go deeper in this, we must now, looking at Peter and Jesus in contrast, and this contrast, by the way, is continuing throughout this story, we must note that there are two kinds of suffering in our life. There is the suffering when I suffer for another, and there is a suffering when I suffer only because of myself and my unfulfilled desires. There is the suffering that stays late at work to provide for a family. There is a suffering that cooks and cleans and is dog tired at the end of the day. There is a suffering that is for the other. Or there is a suffering when I don't get the recognition or the following I think I deserve. There is a suffering of not making my weight loss plan. There is a suffering of losing out on concert tickets. There is a suffering of your side losing the fight. In short, there is a suffering that is born out of this pain of service and sacrifice. And there is a suffering, not born of pain and sacrifice, but of pride, which is basically self-pity. And Peter here begins his journey into a wallowing of self-pity, starting with the cutting off of the ear and seeing that his way is not the Jesus way. His pride is injured. And we see the fall off of that as the story continues. Because Jesus had the confidence misplaced and the wrong trajectory, he had to be corrected. Peter is on a journey of restoration. Because his suffering was of the wrong kind. Peter was willing to suffer, but we'll see only for the wrong reasons. And when the suffering was for the right reasons, he chickened out. So, no one, if we're honest with ourselves, thinks that suffering in and of itself is bad. We all endure suffering. I don't think it's, it's too easy to say we just live our life to get away from suffering. No, we all endure certain kinds of suffering. But we have misplaced what our suffering means. And most of us have decided out of our pride that our suffering is the good suffering. And I think we need to check ourselves. And fortunately, Jesus gives a rubric to check ourselves in the story. And that gets us to our second point. That the attitude in all pain in suffering is thus to be hopeful and not hopeless. To be hopeful and not hopeless. 
The story continues in this cross-cutting filmic scene of drama now between Peter down in the courtyard below and Jesus up in the trial scene above. John is trying to elucidate the contrast for us. Peter in this story is what in a narrative we call a foil. Jesus looks all the more divine when we see the follower of Jesus seem all the more human. He's a foil. In a narrative way, he shows and heightens the black to the white, the contrast between the two so that we can see the differences more clearly and we can desire to be like Jesus in this back and forth story. Again, here, John's big point seems to be that the most sideways seeming event, the most tragically ironic event that the son of the, the God himself would be killed at the hands of the God worshipers is all going according to plan. In the pain and suffering of our lives, it is all going according to plan. But the attitude for all of our suffering, whether it's misplaced or not, is to have a hopeful attitude. See where Peter's hopeless attitude gets him in this story. Peter, you could sum up his view, his hopeless view of his suffering as I am not his disciple. I have no idea up from down. I can't figure out anything in my life. Nothing makes sense. I am utterly hopeless because of the situation and the pain and the suffering around me. And what I thought was true wasn't true, that I'm not going to get what I want. Woe is me. As Michael Miller said last week, the vision Peter had for the kingdom was disrupted and he wallowed in his self-pity. The theme of Jesus, however, is culminated in his statement to Pilate where he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Hey, Pilate, everything's going according to plan. It's just that you don't see it. My kingdom is not. I couldn't be more hopeful right now. Pain? Sure, lots of pain. Suffering? Definitely going to be lots of suffering. It's going to be excruciating. But I couldn't be more hopeful because I am fulfilling God's wish for me. I am fulfilling the acts of prophecy over my life. That hopefulness is grounded in the divine truth and hopelessness is believing a lie. How's that for your pain and your suffering in your life? This means that if we, in our pain and suffering, okay, let me backtrack for a second. We know deep down, actually, that this is true. A non-Christian knows this is true. A total humanist in Portland knows this is true. We know deep down that when we talk to anyone contemplating suicide, We know that this basis, that we must be hopeful, that hopeful is the only way out of our pain and suffering, that hope is the answer. We know that's true. We just have no basis and no actual honest integrity. 
We have no intellectual integrity in stating that if we don't believe in the gospel. I'm a firm believer that in our culture, without the gospel, so many things, we will see the truth in them, but we won't be able to make sense of them because we're missing the puzzle piece to make the picture work. And that puzzle piece is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news because it finally makes sense of the world around us. I can know that to tell somebody to walk off the ledge, to tell somebody to not end it tonight over the phone, I can know that the right thing is to make them hope in something. But the Christian worldview is that the only thing that actually brings dependable hope is the cross of Jesus Christ and the authority of the creator God and the resurrection life and the eternal life with him who is love. That's the only thing that has intellectual integrity and the gospel explains it, this deepest mystery. And we know it's true. So when we are in our own pain and suffering, know that if you were talking to yourself, you would be searching for some hopeful place to bring you. But the reason it doesn't always work, I think, Obviously, myriad biochemical things that result in that stage of depression. I'm not discounting those. But when we can't articulate a hope to actually live for, it's hard to want to live. Now, many of us base that hope in idols. Hope in your kids. Hope in your spouse. Hope in the sun being out tomorrow. Those are all fine things, but they're not the ultimate thing. You need to realize that the devil wants you to take your, hope, your, your pain and suffering to bring you into hopelessness, just like he did with Judas. And what is the result? What is the end goal for the devil in that? Do we see Judas in this story anymore? No. Guess what? Judas is the devil's afterthought. After Judas played into the devil's game and allowed him into his body and succumbed to hopelessness, the devil spit him out and left him out to dry. He's used and discarded. Do not go to hopelessness in your pain and suffering. This is why the historical nature of the resurrection is key. And we'll go into this more in Easter. The resurrection is not a metaphor. It's not nice poetry. It's not a fairy tale theme. It's not simply a philosophical truth. It is a historical reality or all of this breaks down. The reasons for hopefulness utterly break down if Jesus is just a crazy maniac here. The cross and the resurrection must be historical reality if you want to base your hope in anything. Okay, the rest of this story under this framework is the high priest and Pilate wrestling with the nature that there is no truth outside of the real truth, which is the truth of the deity of Jesus, God incarnate. If you discount that, everything else breaks apart. The key factor in this whole story, the, the, the centering place of meaning, for both of these accusing parties that put Jesus on trial is Pilate's line in verse 38, where after a back and forth conversation with Jesus, there's so much going on here that's so rich and interesting. That he says to Jesus, what's truth? Jesus is all about the truth and Pilate has the honest integrity to say, really, you're concerned about truth right now? 
The way I see the world, the only thing that matters is power. Citizens Church, we are awash in the 21st century in an ideology that is no different than the ideology in 30 AD. That the most important thing, that the goal is power. And so in this framework, we can now see how all of the narrative pieces work out in the story. That the high priest, Annas, the father-in-law, why do they bring Jesus to Annas first before Caiaphas? I circled that in my Bible. Annas is like a kingpin. He's got the money. He's built the relationships. He's like the mob lord. So even little Caiaphas brings him before Papa Annas to get the okay, to get the rubber stamp, to say, hey, look, daddy, look what I did. And then Annas, in his political power and maneuvering, steers the ship with Caiaphas in the position that he needs to be in as the high priest position. When all of these people are morally bankrupt and not worthy of their names or identities. And yet they are maneuvering around to try and accomplish for the Jews to create a power place. To get rid of this Jesus person that's infringing on their power. And to stick it to the Romans somehow. And give the Romans their dirty laundry. To make Pilate do the killing. So that their hands are clean. Because they believe that they have the religious upper hand. They believe that they're the holders of the truth, but their truth is baseless because they don't believe in the deity of Jesus. Pilate, meanwhile, gets that this is what's going on. He sees the puppeteering. He sees the power maneuvering. He sees the jockeying for position. He sees how they're trying to offload Jesus onto him. And by the way, Pilate gets the final word. He's no dummy. And so he takes this and he he goes, okay, fine, I can't. Uh, He goes, you can't even come into the the Passover rules. Don't allow you to come into my Roman dwelling. Okay, fine, I'll come out to the porch. I'll meet you where you're at. And there's this back and forth game. I call it a game of hot potato where they're trying to throw the onus of the murder of Jesus on the other. Nobody wants to kill Jesus. He's innocent. Nobody can find any guilt with him. The world doesn't know what to do with Jesus because they can't find any guilt with Jesus. But they try and find ways to trump up claims because of things that they believe are true of Jesus, which are actually lies. This still happens today, by the way. So that they can publicly make a spectacle of him and demean him. Under auspices that he himself doesn't even claim to hold. This is why the church is skewered in the name of Jesus and Jesus is demeaned for the sins of the church that have nothing to do with the ways of Jesus. Don't you get it? Don't you see it? Nothing has changed. Pilate believes what Jafar believes in the movie Aladdin. Remember that line in Aladdin where at the very beginning, he's all dressed up and with the scraggly teeth and the beard and he just wants Aladdin to do his beating. And he says, you've heard of the golden rule, haven't you? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. This is Pilate's steering philosophy. And so when he's grilling Jesus here, And Jesus is coming out innocent and pure, confident and hopeful in the Father. Jesus, Pilate tells Jesus, I don't get what kind of king you are because the only king 
A king is only a king when he possesses power, not truth. You think truth has anything to do with Rome? You think truth has anything to do with the Jewish authorities? It's all about power. Annas and Caiaphas have sacrificed. They've thrown away their truth when they started wheeling and dealing with the Romans to get their mob lord power. And church, I would like to say that oftentimes we are more like Pilate than we would like to think. Don't we look at those with successful jobs, with cars, with houses, with lifestyles, with decor, with perfect kids and Insta accounts, with the greatest life stories, with the best book lists, and say they look like kings. We dismiss the wise kings who live in service of truth to go after the earthly kings who wield the power. Even in our faith, don't we do this? But Jesus takes the high road and he says, I was born to bear witness to the truth. See, the reality is for most of us, we're not so much concerned with the truth as we are concerned for what good it does for us. What's the use of it all? What Pilate is saying here is you're about to die, Jesus. What is truth right now? And Jesus says, you don't get it. If I wanted that, he says, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, verse 36. But my kingdom is not of this world. How are we doing for time? Okay. Look. We can draw in the faulty world's sham authority. We can draw our power from that, or we can draw it from the truth of God's authority. The trial that is happening here is not the world putting Jesus on trial. It's not the Jews putting on Jesus on trial. It's not the Romans putting on Jesus on trial. It's not Portland putting Jesus on trial. It is Jesus putting the world on trial. That is the narrative of this trial. Under God's authority, Jesus prosecutes the world. Now read the text. Now examine it under the proper theological framework where we have a theocentric view of God, a high view of God. And then view this, that Jesus is not out for vengeance like Peter, but Jesus is out and his goal of all suffering is redemption and restoration. That Jesus is after the resurrection life, not just for some, but he's after it for all people. Jesus died for the world, John three sixteen. Service is not to just do the right thing. Service is not to just absolve our guilt. Service is not because it's the moral high ground church. Service is for the purpose of the redemption of others. The reason we have so much hit and run service in the global church is because we don't actually believe in the redemption of other people. We don't actually believe in the restoration of other people. In fact, our cheap grace and our inappropriate view of the cross and Jesus' kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is what results in baptism hit and runs. No, 
full life discipleship is the restoration process of Jesus. The baptism is the beginning of a long road. Walk with somebody, restore them. This is why foster care speaks to me in such a deep level. This is taking somebody discarded by society and giving up your life for the restoration in the life of Jesus, for a resurrection life that is at a tremendous cost to your life but also yields tremendous benefit. But it's totally out of your control. That kid might be taken away from you. It's completely under God's authority. That kind of restoration sacrifice is so different than just doing the right thing. It's carrying your cross. It's laying down your life. It's bearing witness to the truth like Jesus does before Pilate. It is saying, I'm not going to get vengeance. I'm not going to have it my way. I'm not going to live out of pride because I know that if I do that, I'm just going to deny Jesus when push comes to shove like Peter is doing as Jesus' foil in this story. Instead, Jesus bears witness. That means that Jesus is making himself a monument to the glory of God. I've been struck by this image of a monument that we in our pain and suffering as a church are a monument. There's a lot of talk about monuments right now. I deliberately chose this image to kind of poke us. We have all sorts of feelings about what's going on with monuments. What if I were to say that the church is to be the monument that we look at and revere? That the cross of Christ is the monument. That the lives in Christian and church history of those who carried their cross in service and restoration are to be the monuments that we put up. That we are to live ourselves as a monument for others. Bearing witness, that's what a monument does. It testifies in its silence and its stillness. What if our monuments testified to the glory of Jesus and his kingdom and his vision? But instead, we have sacrificed and compromised our morals and we have had visions of redemptions that are much more like Caiaphas than Jesus. Remember, Caiaphas fulfills a prophecy here. The prophecy is from John 11. John 11, Caiaphas says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that is it expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. So Caiaphas wanted to serve others. He wanted to serve his tribe. He wanted Jesus to die so that the Romans wouldn't come with this uprising, for all they knew, an uprising of a king that was going to make the Romans come down hard on the Jews and perhaps kill lots of people. That was the framework that Caiaphas was at least using and manipulating to get his way, right? I think Caiaphas probably knew better, but he was using that to manipulate. It was his rhetoric. He's saying, one man needs to die so all the Jews don't get come down on by the Romans. And he was fulfilling a prophecy, of course. But Caiaphas, just because he's fulfilling a prophecy doesn't make Caiaphas good. Caiaphas's moral bearings were so utterly compromised. He said, it's okay to murder an innocent man if it means that I protect my people. And so many of us are caught in this compromise when we don't live by the way of Jesus, where we have said, it's okay that this or this political thing happen so that babies don't die. It's okay that this and this political compromise happen so that black lives matter. I just said that. It is okay for us to compromise the kingdom of Jesus to get a certain end to to create power for an oppressed people. 
Jesus says, I don't work in the oppressor oppressed narrative. I work in the truthful narrative. This is intense stuff, you guys. And Jesus does it at a cost to himself. Jesus knew full and well with so many symbols that show us this. This one struck me. I believe it was William Barclay that was writing about this scene where Jesus goes at the beginning of the story and he crosses the brook Kidron when he comes out of the upper room to go to the Garden of Gethsemane when he's first being betrayed. Barclay said this, he said, historically, there was a river running down across the brook Kidron every Passover. And it was a river of blood that came down from the temple courts, which were right above there, from the area where they were sacrificing the Passover lambs. And there was a river of blood that Jesus would have seen, this dried river of blood. He would have smelled the smell of the sacrifice of the lamb as he crossed in to drink his cup. What masterful imagery John paints for us of the tragic irony that Jesus would be the true Passover lamb, that everything is going to according to plan. That when Jesus says it is finished, he refers to the achievement carefully of a carefully arranged plan, not a tragedy that could be averted. Sometimes our pain and suffering is ordained. But there is one who went before us, who had it ordained for him, who willingly, who beautifully walked in in service for us. So that we would be restored. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And the irony is that Caiaphas, the Jews could kill as many Passover lambs as they wanted to, to try and alleviate their sin. But the only one who can alleviate the sin of their demonic energy as they seek to kill the Son of God himself is the true Passover lamb, is Jesus. And he's the only one who can save us from our pain and suffering of being useless and hopeless and senseless. But unfortunately, because it doesn't seem to give us a short-term answer so many of the times, we unite against instead of for. Instead of being with Jesus and carrying our cross alongside of him, in unity for each other alongside the church, we unite against him. There's another powerful, ironic image that John uses in this story. While Jesus is the Passover lamb, the people that had praised him and welcomed him in his triumphal entry yell out, and this is the final third act of this narrative that we see, Pilate comes out to the crowds and he says, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. Who do you want me release to you? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a robber. Or in some translations it says, Barabbas took part in the uprising. We want the revolutionary. 
But the distinct irony here is that this word Barabbas, Baraba, means son of the father. In Jewish language, if, if you hear it, a lot of atheists do this, they'll say, Jesus bar Joseph, to discount his data. They'll say, Jesus, son of Joseph, Jesus bar Joseph. That's the Jewish terminology for last names, the son of. And so the incredible irony here is that Jesus, the true son of the father who would die for our sins, who would be king, the son of the king returned, is thrown away by the crowds who would rather have the son of the earthly father. And we in our world so often to alleviate our pain would would rather have the revolutionary, the son of the earthly father too. That is just the disgusting irony. But look, do you ever hear about Barabbas again? Do you ever hear about the son of the earthly father? Does he go down in history? Do we hear about Pilate? Do we hear about Caiaphas and Anaphas redeeming themselves in some wonderful way because they followed God's eternal plan? Or do we see that the world's errands pass away, but God's are eternal? God's desires your redemption. Jesus desires your redemption, and he does it for your good. So we have to remember Jonathan Bailey, a writer on Christian spiritual formation, says this is what we have to remember about the mortification or the killing of sin, that pain, crucifixion, and death are vehicles to a new kind of life, a resurrection life. So confidence, hopefulness. Hopefulness is a signifier of your pain. If you're not hopeful in your pain, examine the source of your suffering. Perhaps it's coming from yourself. And then from that hopefulness, be restoration-minded for the other. That we will give up building a worldly kingdom for ourselves even when we can. Because our desire is to build the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has denied the temptation long ago from Satan to have all the power. He's, he's exercised these resistances over time in discipline so that he could come and redeem all people. How am I doing for time? Okay, I'm pretty much out. <sighs> do I have time for this final story? Okay, I'm just gonna do it. You guys know I'm a big fan of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II pastor, theologian under Nazi Germany. Was part of the confessing church and the Abwehr, the German resistance against Hitler. There is lots of press about Bonhoeffer being a part of the assassination attempt of Hitler. I even thought that Bonhoeffer was some violent or co-conspirator role. But I've read a little bit about it. And so far as I can tell, Bonhoeffer's vision was for nonviolence. Bonhoeffer's vision was very much one who endured his own crucifixion. Bonhoeffer was martyred. 
And Bonhoeffer knew full well that there was a possibility in that suffering that being part of this resistance, he may take on some of the guilt of the blood of Hitler. Being part of this resistance may make him culpable in some way. Life is not a perfect path. Sometimes there are ways in which we find ourselves in places where part of our suffering is to choose the best path before us that we can find and take on the guilt fully on ourselves of what it may mean. Efforting in every way for the kingdom path. Your jobs are gray. Your pursuits in life are gray. Your parenting sometimes is very much in the gray. I'm not saying you can always figure it out. You're suffering perfectly. That you can always know that what you're doing is absolutely for the redemption. But you can do it in such a way that you are furthering the redemption to the best of your possibility. The restoration of others to the best of your... Yes, was Bonhoeffer part of this group that made a plot of violent assassination of Hitler? Yes, he was. But Bonhoeffer, in that, in every effort he could do, said... I would rather this not be. I would rather this not be the case. And in fact, I'm going to do everything in my power to do the best restorative acts for everyone around me. This included uh, extraditing Jews to other countries, getting them out of there on his own skin with his own influence. This included pastoring to the Nazi officers who imprisoned him in a POW camp. This is not a vengeful man. This is not a vindictive man. This is a man that even though he knows that Hitler is a mass murderer who needs to be removed somehow, some way, will even seek the redemption of the forces that Hitler uses for his ends. And the main focus of a man like Bonhoeffer, the main redemptive pulse in his pain and suffering was to start a seminary called Finkenwald. And the, the, the crowning, I've used this story, the crowning story he uses, he brought a visitor to Finkenwald over that he was trying to raise money to get pastors to, to seminary with the confessing church. And he brings him up to a hill and he looks at Hitler Youth training across the river. And he said, this force needs to be stronger than that force. The restorative force, the force that confesses and is a monument for Jesus Christ must be stronger than the forces of vengeance. Remember, Hitler's defining paradigm, the way he gained his power was to say, Germany is oppressed. The motherland has been discarded. Everything you believe that is right and good and true and pure has been put off by these horrible Western people who, who are just opulent and gross. He used the oppressor-oppressed narrative to further a vengeful movement. But Bonhoeffer will not operate in that paradigm, even if it requires carrying his own cross. And what's more, people say that Bonhoeffer had the look of joy in his eyes. That even on the last morning when he prayed with the prisoners with him, he smiled with a look of hopeful joy as he faced his own crucifixion. Church, we will all be facing our own crucifixions. Jesus has died for your sins. You do not need to die for them. But Jesus says, carry your cross. We have taken a gospel that says Jesus died for our sins, so I don't have to suffer. And that is a false gospel. 
God has ordained pain and suffering over your life as a means to grow your confidence, your hopefulness, and your restoration for others. I just want to close with Psalm 23 quickly again. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. You, Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're thankful. We're grateful. We are suffering. Some of us are suffering tremendously. Help us find the source of that suffering. Are we hopeful or hopeless? Help us be confident in your authority. Help us get outside of ourselves to work for the restoration of others. God, the unity that you want us for is to use this life that you have given us, not for our own glory, but for yours, to lay it down for others so that the world, so that your kingdom may be in Portland as it is in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.